Right. Get things. Well, I'm on paper as well. I usually try and use the old iPad, but I'm going old school today, so we'll try some paper. Now, you might remember this guy. Let's get him up on the screen here, this guy. This is um, Ali Al-Magrahi, who was the Lockerbie bomber. Now, uh, you might remember he was found guilty and put in jail for orchestrating a, a, a bombing of a flight in 1988, which exploded over the Scottish town of Lockerbie, killed 259 passengers and people and crew, uh, and 11 people in the town itself. Um, and that was a long time ago. I don't actually remember the event, but I do remember in 2009 when he applied for compassionate leave from jail because he had only three months to live uh, due to terminal cancer. Uh, and if you were around in 2009, you probably will remember the kind of fierce debate around his proposed release. Some people were absolutely outraged that the government could even consider releasing somebody on any grounds who'd done what he'd done. And even many people who were sort of generally in favor of compassionate relief in these sorts of circumstances felt that this example was just too much. He was simply too bad. He had done too much wrong, hurt too many people, caused too much uh, pain and suffering uh, to be extended grace even at his death. Now, if you had been alive 3,000 years ago, the top of everyone's list who didn't deserve any compassion at all, would be a, a group of people called the Assyrians. Uh, and these were one of the most barbaric nations ever to exist, who basically boasted of their torture. Most civilizations will draw pictures of farms and pyramids and things like that. But the Assyrian art is pictures of their evil massacres and their torture of people. I'm going to read a quote from one of their kings, Ashurbanipal. This is him reporting in his diary about how great a king he is. And he says this, I built a pillar over the city, against the city gate and I flayed all the chief men who had revolted and covered the pillar with their skins. Some I impaled on the pillar on stakes, others I bound to stakes around the pillar and cut off the limbs of the royal officers who had rebelled. Now, the capital city of that nation was a great city called Nineveh, and it's this city that is the center of the book of Jonah, which is a sort of short section of the Bible that we've been learning from over the last few weeks. And Jonah has been sent to preach God's judgment upon the Ninevites for their great evil, uh, and he calls them to repentance. And despite some false starts that we learned about in chapters 1 to 3, uh, involving running, uh, praying, drowning, fish storms, all that sort of stuff. He's eventually gone and eventually delivered God's message. And would you believe it, the Ninevites have responded. They've listened to him. They've turned from their evil ways and they have most genuinely sought God's forgiveness. And we can see God's response to them here. Jonah chapter 3 verse 10, we looked at this last week. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. So disaster averted. Good news, Jonah's preaching has been so effective that the most evil nation in the history of the known world, from king to slave, has been brought to its knees in contrition. Jonah must be over the moon. You know how excited I would be if some of you even just remain awake at the end of my sermon. But imagine all of you are moved to tears and change your entire life as a result of what I say over the next 25, 35, 45 minutes. I've, no, 25 probably. You'd, I'd be pretty happy about it. I'd feel pretty pleased about it. So what happens next? Let's find out. What does happen next? Laura's going to come and read to us. Open your Bibles. It is on page 929, if you've got a Bible that looks like this. 929, Jonah chapter 4. 
Uh, there we are, yes. Uh, look for the big number four. It's on that side of the page. And go up one verse, one paragraph, one little sentence. We're going to read from 3 verse 10. So that's the very top of the column on the right-hand page. Laura. Okay, Jonah 3 verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort, and Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, It would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? Right, so that is not what we are expecting. Jonah is angry. And not just angry, he's livid. Verse 1, but to Jonah this seemed very wrong and he became angry. Now, if you look at the original language there, the the actual wording, the original wording says, it was displeasing to Jonah, a great displeasure. He's doubly angry, absolutely raging at what God has done. Uh, And now fortunately we get to hear his dialogue to try and understand why he's so upset. And he says, verse 2, look down if you've got your Bibles open. Verse 2, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That, that, that is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Jonah here is quoting from Exodus 34. That's a famous part of the Bible uh, earlier on where God describes himself to his chosen people, the Jews, that he is kind and compassionate, merciful, gracious. Uh, And this revelation to the Jews comes right off the back of one of the most dark uh, and rebellious moments in Israel's history when they thumb their noses at God and reject him in the most egregious way. It's right then that God reaches out to them with forgiveness and compassion and then says, look, this is what I'm like. This is me. I'm gracious. I'm compassionate. So then why is Jonah so angry? Well, ultimately, like many people felt about the government's decision to show compassion to Megrahi, fundamentally, Jonah thinks the Assyrians don't deserve God's compassion. 
And here we're not just talking about the compassion of a judicial system for a single event, even a terrible one, but the forgiveness of Almighty God, the ruler of heaven and earth, the judge of all the earth, for the entire city with a history thousands and thousands of years of huge brutality, thousands and thousands of dead people in their past. Jonah's saying, it's fine for God to be kind and compassionate to Israel, to relent from sending calamity on them. But it's not okay for the Assyrians. I'm actually quite grateful, God, that you sent that fish for me and saved me when I was drowning, spat me out on the sea and gave me another chance to go and speak to the Assyrians. But these Ninevites are pure evil. Haven't you seen what they've done, God? The torture, the degradation, the human rights abuses. And God's response to Jonah's anger about his compassion is a simple question. Is it right for you to be angry? And the rest of the section is unpacking the answer to this question. And it's quite easy for us to feel a bit meh about the Assyrians, right? They never hurt any of us. Probably, maybe some of you never even heard of the Assyrians. They're all dead now, and it was thousands of years ago. It's hard to sort of identify with Jonah's anger. So I want to see if we can get just a little bit of a feel for it. Now, in some ways, we have the Assyrians and King Ashurbanipal alive and kicking here in Europe right now. And I think whether you're a Christian or not, many of us would feel pretty good about God raining down his righteous anger in judgment upon Putin and his government for what he's doing, in judgment for their evil. But what if he doesn't? And more than that, and if you can just suspend disbelief for a minute, what if you're a Christian here and in some weird set of circumstances, Putin were to come to you and say, I've heard the gospel. I've heard the good news of forgiveness in Christ. I'm ready to follow him. I'm ready to turn from my evil ways. I'd like to come and be a part of Hope City. How would you feel about that? Well, I think if you, can, if you can begin to even imagine how you might feel about that, you probably feel a lot like Jonah is feeling in this passage. God, why did you have to go and do that? Why not let the fire and brimstone come down and rain on this guy? Now, if that feels a bit uncomfortable, thinking about that, or if the, you feel well, that's, a, that's a bit off talking about this in church, then you're probably a little bit toward how Jonah is feeling. So I'm going to ask you to stick with it. Hold on to that feeling. And the lesson of this bit of the Bible is how we respond when we see God's compassions to others, God's compassion to others. And this section shows us there are two responses and only two responses, the right response and the wrong response. And the rest of the section talks about and explains the wrong response and points us toward the right response. So we're going to look at that. What is the wrong response? God has posed this question to Jonah. Is it right for you to be angry? Uh, is it right for you to be angry? What he's asking, is it right for you to be angry for me showing compassion to the Ninevites? And verse 5, look down again, verse 5, Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. And there he made himself a shelter and sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. He doesn't even respond to God. God asks the question. And instead, his body language is his answer. Folds his arms, sulks off to the east of the city and sits down and waits to see whether God might change his mind. Perhaps he's sitting there hoping that maybe I'll feel the rumble of an earthquake. Maybe 
there's a gathering of clouds and some lightning brewing there. Maybe, maybe that's the distant sound of an army going to come and ruin the city of Nineveh. Maybe there's a wisp of smoke from a distant volcano. He's hoping something is going to happen to show that God has changed his mind. And verse 6, let's see what happens. The Lord provided, and the word there is the same word as in chapter 1. Just like God provided the fish for Jonah, if you were here a few weeks ago when we were looking at that, God now provides, sends this plant to Jonah. But this is a plant with a purpose. It, it, it says it's there to ease his discomfort, but there's a play on words in the original language, and this is a double entendre. Ease his discomfort can also mean deliver him from his wickedness. So there's a pun there that we don't quite get. Maybe we might say it in English, God provided the plant to help him in his plight. Now, is his plight the sun and the shade, or is his plight the problem with God? That's the double entendre there, right? So this plant is about to teach him a lesson. It grows overnight, miraculously big enough to provide shade for him in the sun. And Jonah is very, very happy, a great happiness. That's the same construction as in verse 1, where God's actions displease Jonah with great displeasure. Now, the plant pleases Jonah with great pleasure. He's very happy about the plant. This is fantastic. On one level, he's happy about the plant because he's got some shade from the sun. Fine, you can make sense of that. But on a deeper level, he's happy, very happy, because he knows this plant is from God. It's grown up miraculously in just overnight. So clearly, it's, it's come from God. This is a miraculous plant. And so Jonah's thinking, hey, maybe God is coming round to my way of thinking. Yes, I am right to be angry. And maybe God has realized that. Maybe this is God sending me flowers, showing me, like saying sorry for, you know, asking me that question. Yes, it is right for me to be angry. Maybe the destruction is coming after all. However, let's read on. What happens? Verse 7, look down. God provided, same word, fish in the chapter 1, plant, now a worm, which literally attacks the plant. That's the word there, attack the plant and causes it to die. God provided the fish, provided the plant, provided the worm. Now he provides, verse 8, a scorching east wind that blazes down on Jonah. Uh, And the word there is that the sun attacks Jonah's head. Just like the worm attacked the plant, the sun attacks Jonah's head. His shade is gone, the sun is beating down on him. He's dehydrated, he's angry, he's absolutely at the end of his tether, blind with rage at God. And so God has cranked up the heat on Jonah, bit by bit by bit. And now we come to the second question. Look at it, verse 9. Is it right for you to be angry, dot, 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 about the plant? It's deliberately the same wording as before. Is it right for you to be angry? Is it right for you to be angry about this plant? And God is trying to explain things to Jonah. He's trying to say, my first question, my second question, they're the same thing. This is the same question. Are you getting this, Jonah? Now, he, hadn't, he didn't get it in general up at the top of the chapter. Uh, so let's make this understandable. Here's the plan. Is he going to get it now in the particular? Uh, but no, Jonah has clearly not grasped what God is teaching him. And he doubles down. Yes, I'm angry. And I'm angry enough to die. Not just about the plant, but about everything. Just when it looked like you were listening to me uh, and maybe going to act sensibly, maybe destroy the city, you ruined the one good thing in my life. Yeah, I'm angry. I wish I was dead. And it's now that God moves to make his point. Having asked the original question, having taught Jonah this object lesson with this weird plant, it's time to explain things. Verse 10, look at it there. You have been concerned about this plant, Jonah, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight, died overnight, 
Should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and also many animals? This is the point of the whole of this section. Verse 10. Jonah, you care so deeply about a one-day-old plant that you would prefer to die than be without it and yet you couldn't care less about the far greater value of the city of Nineveh. What is more valuable, Jonah? Plants or people? This business of them not knowing their right hand from their left is a shorthand of talking about the Ninevites' inability to make moral decisions, spiritual decisions. They're in darkness. They're lost. They've no idea where to turn. And God is saying, if you care about plant, then, then what about the animals? Of, he adds that at the end. What about the animals? What about the people? I created them. I love them. I care for them. And unlike you and your plant, which just sprang up overnight. So if you can show compassion for a plant, I can show compassion for this great city of Nineveh. And of course, none of that should be a surprise to Jonah. It shouldn't have taken a miraculous plant, a worm and a wind for him to get this. You only need to read through the previous three chapters. If you haven't been here for the last three weeks, take 10 minutes to read through the the other three chapters and read Jonah's story. It's an incredible story of God's forbearance and his compassion on the one man Jonah. We've titled this series of talks, Relentless Grace, because that's what God has been doing with Jonah, pursuing him relentlessly, showing him grace after grace, even when Jonah didn't want to accept it. And now he's extended that grace from Jonah to the Ninevites. And Jonah even quotes God back to himself. Again, verse 2 there. I knew you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Grace, compassion, forgiveness. It's who God is. It's in his character. It's in his DNA. And Jonah knows it. It's what he did to Jonah and now what he's doing to the Ninevites. So let's pause Let's take our temperature at this point. How are you feeling? And I ask you that because your emotions at this point will tell you quite a lot. Are you feeling a trickle of anger that God could extend compassion to a group of people like the Ninevites? Well, if you are, let's just think of what the other side of that coin is. If you're angry because others don't deserve God's compassion, what's being unsaid there? They don't deserve God's compassion, but I do. You're angry because deep down you feel you are good enough to deserve God's compassion. Oh, hey, I'm not perfect. But neither would Jonah would say he was not perfect, but you know, he was a good Jew. He was part of God's chosen people. He was a prophet, a kind of spiritual leader for the nation. Uh, you know, he's definitely somewhere in God's good books, right? And for us, maybe it's not those things, but you know, we're here in church. We read our Bibles now and again, maybe. We pay our taxes. I'm pretty sure no one in here has ever murdered anybody. We give to the homeless in the street. I don't take sick days at work. I don't know, whatever it is. I'm not perfect, but I'm pretty good. And I think I make like a half-decent addition to God's people. I'm the kind of guy God's looking for. If you can identify with that attitude, you're Jonah. Now, some of us might be feeling that, but I imagine there's another group of us who are just feeling a bit meh about the whole thing and especially if you're not a Christian here you might be thinking what do I care what do I care who God shows compassion to you know if he wants to show it to Nineveh then go ahead find my me I don't really care go for it but again let's just think what's behind that 
If I feel a bit meh about God showing compassion to others, what's that saying? It's because I don't need it. I don't need to get bent out of shape about who God shows compassion to because even if I believe in God or not, like, like I, don't, I don't really care what he does and I don't think I need it anyway. And maybe even if you're a Christian and you do care about what God thinks of you, then you might still think, meh, what does it matter if he's kind to these other people? Well, the Bible makes it clear that we all fall short. God doesn't mark on a curve that the top 50% make it in and the bottom 50% don't. His standard is perfection, that you would put others before yourself to such an extent that you would be willing without a blink of an eye to die for other people. God says that every word that has ever come out of your mouth should encourage and build up other people, never hurting, never tearing down. That if you hate somebody in your heart, it's as bad as murdering them. That if you look lustfully at somebody else, then in your mind you've already committed adultery with them. If you tell a single white lie ever in your entire life, you're a liar through and through. And if you failed even once on any of those things, and I could go on and on about a list of more, then you have failed totally to keep up to God's standard. The Bible puts it like this, there is no one righteous, not even one. Maybe we can get that on the screen, Squiz, if we can. Let's get this one up, because I don't actually have it here in front of me. There we are. I should have learned this, eh? There is no one righteous, not even one. No one who understands. No one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. That means you. You are not righteous. You are not good. I am not righteous. I am not good. And the Bible makes it clear that we will all be called to give an account of how we've lived before God after we die. How do you think you're going to score on that grading system? Let me tell you, not well. And it's the scandalous truth that it is only the undeserving that receive God's grace and mercy. Because none of us deserve God's grace and mercy. And if you don't deserve it, and if I don't deserve it, and the Ninevites don't deserve it, then we all deserve it the same amount. None. If you think you deserve God's grace one milligram more than the worst person you can imagine, then you have misunderstood the scandal of his grace. It is for everyone, for the worst imaginable. And in God's economy, you are no better than the Assyrians. Now, maybe if you're a Christian here, let me give you one example. You know this. You know this to be true. Think back to before you were a Christian. Well, maybe some of you are here now, but church felt like a waste of time. Why would you ever go to church? If you did get dragged along to church or came along to church for some reason, like talks were a total snooze fest, like who cares, this guy rabbiting on for 25 minutes. The songs were just like weird, cheesy ballads. Couldn't care less about them. The music was rubbish. Everyone in, around you were just self-serving hypocrites. The whole thing's a total waste of time. But something changed. God opened your eyes somehow, changed your heart somehow. Everybody's got a different story. But now God's people, their dear brothers and sisters, now singing praises to God brings tears to your eyes, no matter how good or bad the music is. The Bible seems alive and thrilling. Sermons are food for your soul through the week. You can't wait to meet with God's people. How did that change come about? How did you go from there to here? Was it because you deserved it? 
Because you earned it. No, you were dead. You couldn't care less about God. But God intervened like he did for the Ninevites. You were unaware. You didn't know your right hand from your left hand. But in Christ, he's made us alive. He's opened our eyes, given us a new heart. So radical a change, the Bible calls it being born again. You don't deserve that. You never could. So that knocks out your anger. How can you feel angry at God extending his compassion to others when he's done that for you? You don't deserve it. You were God's enemies, dead in your guilt and shame. And his grace was extended to you. While you were dead in your sins, he reached into your life. And you can't feel meh about that because every one of us needs it. Being better than most people, better than some people, isn't going to cut it. Are you perfect? I don't think any of us would say that we are. Well, then you're in need of God's forgiveness and his grace. And the good news is that is on offer for you this morning. That even though we've failed to live up to God's standards and deserve his judgment, just like the Assyrians, yet God entered the world in the person of Jesus to die in our place on the cross, God's judgment for your sin, for my sin, for Jonah's sin, for the Assyrian's sin was poured out on Jesus. My guilt, my shame put on him. My punishment put on him. All justice for all sins, for all time, completely paid in Jesus. Now, if you don't know Jesus this morning, then this is good news for you because forgiveness isn't something you can earn or fail to earn. It's given because of who God is. You might be like, Ian, you don't know what I've done. You don't know my past. You don't know how many people I've hurt. You don't know how dark my thoughts are. I'm not sure I can be forgiven by God. And even if I could, I'm not sure he'd want someone like me in amongst his people. Well, he does. He created you. He cares for you. And he wants you to experience his forgiveness that he's made possible for you through Jesus. And if God extends his grace to the Ninevites, the worst of the worst, then hallelujah, it means his grace can extend to you. And that brings us to the right response. We've looked at the wrong responses. Here's the right response, and only briefly, because it doesn't really feature in the passage. What happens here? Does Jonah get it? We don't know. It ends on the question. Is it right for you to be angry, Jonah? Obviously, the answer is no, but we don't hear from Jonah on that. If none of us deserve what God has done, but God has offered it to us at incalculable cost, what can we say? We can say, amazing grace. How sweet that sounds that saved a wretch like me. What else can you do when you see God's compassion extended to others? Praise God, it's what he did for me. You don't deserve his grace, neither did I. Incredible failures like you and like me can be a part of God's kingdom, forgiven, restored, made right before him. And if that makes you angry, if that makes you prideful, like you deserve it, or that makes you indifferent, like you think you don't need it, then you have never experienced his grace for yourself, as it can only result in you feeling happy, joyful, to be reminded of what he's done for you. 
Imagine if you'd been offered compassionate release for some terrible crime. Imagine how that might affect how you would feel when that grace is extended to others. Is it right for you to be angry when God extends his grace to the undeserving? No, because it's that very same grace that was extended to you in Christ. Praise God for his amazing grace that saved a wretch like you. Hallelujah. That's right. Okay, let's pray.